Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Hello, and thanks for joining me again. To give you some background for our discussion today, Many Christians have been reading and learning from Rod Dreyer's book, Live Not by Lies, which describes the totalitarianism of Eastern Europe and how the persecuted believers in the 20th century responded. If you have not read it, I highly recommend it. In fact, Charles Robertson and I did a podcast on it last year, and you might look that up as well. But a good friend posted a suggestion on his Facebook page recommending another book entitled Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China, and the author is Zhang Chang, which chronicles the lives of three generations of women who lived before, during, and after the communist takeover of China, the Great Leap Forward, and the Cultural Revolution under communist dictator Mao Zedong. I just completed the book, and now understand why it was highly recommended. That friend, Tim Yarbrough, has been a previous guest on this podcast and has agreed to discuss Wild Swans as a backdrop to answer the question, why do tyrannical governments create a culture of hate to control and separate their citizens? Tim, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you again, and uh, yeah, I'm thankful that uh, that recommendation, uh, uh, you know, turned into uh, a mind for you. So I, I found the book fascinating, and and particularly in regards to the work that we have done over the years in terms of abuse, it is fascinating to discover that the same processes, the same methodologies, the same mindset operates, whether you're talking about on a national scale, uh, whether you're talking on an institutional scale, or whether you're talking within a family setting. It's the same. Yeah. So I I listened to the book. There's some books I'll read, and then there's some books I listen to. And the woman who narrated the story isn't the author, but she had a very engaging way about her And as I was going through it, and it's a rather long book, as I was going through it, this woman became my friend. And that doesn't always happen as you're reading somebody's book. And I found myself pushing for her, hoping for her, like this is all going to culminate and she's going to see that communism is what it is and that she's going to come to faith. I got to the end of the book and I was disappointed, Tim. It was like I wanted her to come to faith in Jesus Christ, because I realized, and I hope you'll comment on this, that part of China's problems prior to communism and what their system was like during communism, and probably in a lot of ways now, has to do with a lack of foundation in Jesus Christ. Well, I I think it is because historically, the Chinese people and much of the Asian people have been immersed into a, an idea of ancestor worship or in authoritarian worship where their leaders in their various social schemes over many, many generations 
have been placed on a pedestal in such a way that the the concept of personal responsibility beyond what the framework is given to them by the authoritarians doesn't exist. And this is, you know, this is one of the things that Jesus Christ, in fact, shatters with his redemptive work in the life of people. And that is because he makes the claim that there is only one sovereign. And since there is only one sovereign, two sovereigns would equal a contradiction in terms. Christians begin to measure everything in light of the sovereignty of God and everything else being delegated. And so this is missing from a, a cultural equation for them. But you, you do notice that in the Chinese social structure where Christians are committed to the word of God, you do see this resistance against this authoritarian control that is not submissive to the ethics of God. It is a fascinating and a wonderful, in my view, just an incredible testimony to the power of God, the gospel to bring liberty to men because they have a vision of living for Christ. So in her case, you see all the manifestations of the image of God in her. She just, this is the, the one who wrote the book was the granddaughter of the first woman whose life is depicted and her mother sort of rebelled against the old ways and embraced communism. And this daughter, the one who wrote the book grows up into this situation. And it's interesting that there isn't a sense that you're supposed to think for yourself. It's somebody's going to tell you how to think and what it's based on isn't always clear to the people. So communism seemed better than what they had before, but without any rationale other than trust us and you'll see it'll all be better and it ended up worse. Well, if you go back to the story of her grandmother, as a young woman, she was given as a concubine to one of their chieftains, and, and this was her life. And uh, she rarely saw the man that was her husband, and she bore a child, and uh, finally he, he died. But this was her life. Her identity was, was enmeshed into this, of which she had no choices. She had, there, there were no other options for her. And, and so this, this was its own tyranny. And, and so what happens to this, this dear lady is when the husband dies, uh, she takes off because things have to be, other things have to be better. She, she makes her own path, as it were, trying to discover a different way of life. And then along comes these, these uh, people who are touting the vision, the eschatology of communism. Uh, how it's going to make the world a better place and things are going to be more equal. Well, if, if you came out of her circumstances, the idea that you would have an elevated position in society that didn't distreat you as though you were a cattle, as it were, uh, that has appeal to it. And, and so she embraced it. And, and you can understand how that people who came from her circumstances 
could embrace this vision of which she actually knew nothing about, but it made promises. And that's, that's the, the, you know, one of the things that you have to admire in a, in a certain sense about communism is that it does have an eschatology and that it does have a, uh, you know, a, a theology of presenting the future, of providing hope for the future. Now, we obviously know it's a false hope, and it's, it's just hard to imagine that people could still embrace that idea and the promises of that system after the obvious evidence, but yet it still rings true in regards to the heart or the hope of the human heart. And that's what happened to this lady. So you think about it, every good, and I put good in quotes, cult or system that's contrary to biblical world and life view will borrow the hope of eternal life, will borrow the hope of things will be good to the degree that we obey our God. Well, of course, they've supplanted the triune God with the God of whoever the leader is at any given time. And I think it speaks to the fact that all people want liberty. All people want it deep down inside. It's just if you're not going to do it God's way, counterfeits can be very appealing and can lure you in. Well, it, it does. And in this case, of course, the, the daughter, you know, you had the grandmother, then you had the mother. And her story, and one of the things just kind of backing away from this, this this is one of the beauties of this book, is I think it communicates truths in such a way because it does it through stories. And of course, the Bible is like that. The Bible communicates these tremendous truths, uh, and it does so much of it through stories. You know, we see the commandments of God, and then we see the illustrations of those commandments. And those stories, we all learn them. We, we come to recognize them and we analyze them. And uh, so I think there's this message that we too ought to be telling these stories, you know, about our relationship with the Lord and what God has done and how he changed us. Uh, my grandchildren will often come and they'll crawl up in my lap and they'll say, Grandpa, tell us a story about when you were young. They, they are, they'll, they'll remind me of a certain story and they will want to hear it again and again. And then they'll, they'll want some of the grandchildren will say to me often, tell me a story about my dad or my mom when they were young. And so, you know, they have these favorite stories that we've shared over the years, but the power of story. Yes. This is one of the most vivid illustrations of that in my lifetime. It's just an incredibly well-told story. And so the mother that you had, the grandmother, then the mom, and the, the mom became immersed with her husband into the communist ideology. And you see them working for it. And, and I, uh, I'm able to put this not only in context of the national thing, but because we deal so much with spiritual abuse by authoritarian leaders within the institutional church world, the picture is just so vivid. So the mom enmeshes the daughter 
into uh, the communist ideology. She marries within that context. They're devoted to it. And, and then what happens is that the ideology, when it doesn't start working out, you have a, a man, the man that she married, who begins to question it. And he questions male. And when he questions it, What he discovers is that in these systems, there is a real problem. And that is, is that having an opinion is equal to a lack of submissiveness. Yes. And so they turn on him and begin to shame him. He gets removed from his job. He winds up in their re-education camps. And all of this is promoted by all the people around them, because if they don't uh, support that, then they will become, they are, they're already been trained that they will become subject to the same type of treatment, the peer pressure, the social expectations that will come on them. And uh, the, the mom knew that this was not true. Uh, what what her husband was accused of, and they went through this period of confusion, and uh, and they they had raised the daughter in it, and uh, but these questions and things that they they begin to have or that the father had didn't go away in the next generation. So and, can I stop you for a second because sure. I think there's an aspect to the father that makes the whole story even more, I would say, impactful. So the father was a true believer in the communist principles. That's one of the things that attracted the mother to the father. And he was so committed to the idea of the fact that you don't want to be bourgeois, even though he came from an educated background, which later made him an enemy of Mao. But to the point that he would deny privilege. So there were times where his wife is very far along in a pregnancy because he's an official. He will ride, but she has to walk. And she asks him, can I please ride with you? And he says, no, we can't do that. We don't want to give the idea that if you have a position in the party, that your family gets special treatment. And so it became very obvious to me through this portion of the book that the communists are trying to replace family with this loyalty to the dictator. They didn't call him a dictator. They called him Chairman Mao. And that every system that works to break down the family is really a system that's at war with God. Yes. And, and, and this is, this is a really interesting discussion in regards to, you know, like in our day, the whole concept of nationalism. Uh, the, the whole concept of allegiances and, and how those work and how those operate and how they should operate. But in this system, it demanded totality. And uh, one of the, the best books on leadership that I've ever read uh, was written in 1948, but it was written by a former communist who left the Communist Party in England, and he wrote this, and, but he, he wrote about this uh, principle within the communist training that on the front-end side, they demanded everything. And they know that if you gave everything, anything 
else would be a given. And this is why their leadership was so effective. And this is the kind of guy that this husband was. He he was absolutely committed to this ideology. And, and, and uh, to the point where when Mao was not living up to the ideology, he felt thoroughly safe in writing to him and saying, you know, you are probably just as dedicated as I am to this cause, only to discover that uh, his letters never even got to Mao. Yes. Well, and, and you discover through this process, too, there's, you know, one of the statements that she makes in the book early on is she now afterwards, this is when I say she, I'm talking about the granddaughter now, the author of the book. And as she uh, was able to reflect on her experience and uh, the life, the, the, the story of grandma and the story of mom and dad and, and, you know, the relationships, she makes the statement and the observation that Mayo had learned from ancient Chinese warfare that the most effective way of conquering the people was to conquer their hearts and minds. And uh, when I first read that, I remember a book that I read back decades ago. And in this, this gentleman had written that, that, you know, over history, we've learned that there are three ways of conquering a people uh, in his view. And one was to just physically conquer them. You, you whip them. Uh, the other one was to conquer them religiously. And the third was to conquer them economically. And that in the most effective regimes, what they had learned to do was how to use, number one, limited, unless they were just bloodthirsties, because by doing that, they could train the hearts and minds by fear. And that became their religion. Their religion became fear. And so, therefore, you were able to conquer them with religion. Now, you can also do that with religion if you can get people to accept for their own good the tyranny of your domination. And, and they believe that this is right and good uh, for them. Uh, you know, somehow you have these people who are seen as superior in knowledge, superior in hierarchy, that kind of a belief. And, uh, and typically, the wiser ones have learned how to use religion as the mechanism, because if your religion goes with you and you believe that, the economics will follow. And, of course, then we see where economics can be used as a tool to retrain belief. Uh, even in our own culture, we're witnessing some of that where there was a young man that I, I got to know very well, where the woke crowds destroyed his business in Chicago. Uh, he had a, a little uh, deli diner there and they were just doing great, serving well. And he was a Christian and uh, he had come out of life of, of sodomy and debauchery of all kinds. And the Lord saved him and he was open about his faith. You know, when opportunity arose, he shared his faith and they, he, he opposed uh, in some of his social media posts and he shared his story of how he was redeemed and he became the target of crowds of thousands that would gather around it and intimidate anybody that would try to go in there to eat. And it eventually closed his, his restaurant. 
And uh, he wound up moving to another state and uh, was more friendly to uh, biblical ethics. And uh, he's now opening, uh, has opened uh, an eatery there and doing very well. But these were the experiences that this family went through, these different pressures that were brought to bear and the intense struggle that they had internally with the father, the mother, and the daughter, you know, these questions that came up, that questioning authority, and yet they felt uncomfortable with it, and yet they knew something was wrong. And this was after they got through the period of, you know, absolute devotion. And so these these struggles are real. And, And one of the things that's helpful about reading a book like this when you engage some of the activity that we do is, is it was very helpful to realize how genuine and real these struggles with these questions were in their lives. And, and, you know, when you see it in real life between, for instance, a a wife and an abusive husband are people in a particular congregation and the leadership of that congregation how real these questions are. We're, we're witnessing the same thing also to a more limited, far more limited degree on a national scale where, you know, what's called wokeism or its conformity to, you know, this particular ethic and the various pressures that they will use. These same pressures that are, are pressure tactics are the uh, embryo of what happened within the Chinese culture. And there's nothing new about it. Yes. So one of the things that was apparent to me, some of my listeners know, I have a background in having been involved with what is correctly labeled a cult, and the very same method is used to inspire the idealist person who wants to do good for planet Earth, who who wants to be able to make a difference because there's an observation that a lot of people just don't care. And so you get involved in this. And then when it starts not do not living up to your expectation, you don't be, feel safe in saying anything because you see one of the primary ways of knowing that you shouldn't be on the good list is if you doubt this. And what struck me in the story was how few people it took to enforce this kind of totalitarianism. In other words, like we can take it today in terms of masking or not masking. If a person walked into a place and didn't have a mask on, it's not like the Marines are going to come out and, you know, gun them down. It's all the other people there who would be saying, you're not wearing your mask. You're not wearing your mask. Well, that was very much and is very much like how tyrannies control. They get the people to do the work and relatively few people are running it. Yeah, there, there's an interesting story I, I shared with uh, you and with others at that time. There's a follow-up book that this author did with uh, after she got out. And there, there's a story there about how she got out of China, the author of the book, as a young woman of 26 years old. And there, there began to be some things that were relaxed. And her mother, in her wisdom, helped this young lady to be able to eventually compete for a scholarship that she got. And she wound up uh, going to England. And it was in England that she met a a man by the name of John Holliday. And 
she eventually marries. And then, of course, the 1989 uh, collapse of the old Soviet Union occurred. Uh, but this will, will, will give you an idea of how far this, this training of the mind and this conformity of it will go. Well, once the walls came down, they went and they be, began to go through the archives of all these different countries. And this ultimately led to a book known as uh, Mayo. And uh, it was, she, she co-authored it, this with her husband. But here is, it's, it's just staggering to consider the implications of this and how far people are willing to go. We've seen it uh, on local levels where over a mask, you will see policemen seek to force it to the point of beating people or to the point of throwing them on the ground and handcuffing them or just other activities. But in this particular case, the story is told that were gathered from the archives, how that when the revolution was going on and there was the war between the nationalists and the communists, that they would surround a city the communists would surround a city and they would seek to starve out the population. And so a mother inside the city uh, would have a, a, a child. There's no food. She herself is hungry. She can't produce the milk to breastfeed her baby. And so the mother would come out and lay the baby at the foot of one of the soldiers that was in the army surrounding the city, and she would turn and go back into the city. And here's the rule that, that had to occur. If you were the soldier that they laid the child in front of, you were required to pick that child up and toss it into the air. So it was visible to everyone. And the person to your right was required to catch that child on a bayonet. Oh, my and if the person to your right did not, the person to his right had to kill him. I mean, and this was the degree to which conformity would go. And the case was, as the evidence showed, that they would catch the baby with the bayonet. Wow. And so there, there's, you know, the, the idea that once this mass psychosis, this mass training grips the minds of people, the fear that it, and that was the real motivator. It was the fear. It became the faith. It became the religion. We simply cannot be surprised that human beings will go to the some of the most ungodly and wicked ends because they're unwilling to accept responsibilities. So do you think the failure to accept responsibility has a direct correlation or causation to fear by that fear is what produces that, or that produces fear? Well, to, to accept responsibility, the, the way that I have uh, come to, believe that this this occurs in our lives is that we have to have a standard that defines that responsibility for us and that standard for everyone else. 
And so if I accept responsibility, particularly I accept responsibility as a Christian, I am my allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to the word of God. And it will can be in a subsidiary form. I can have allegiances to anything else that supports the claims and the directions that Christ gives us in, in the word of God. But I cannot have allegiances that are destructive to that intent. Well, that makes me responsible to that, which means that in any given situation, I have to be willing to oppose evil. And I have to be willing to say no, because the fear of the Lord causes men to depart from evil. But the fear of man, it brings a snare. And it brings this, this doubt into us, or we'll, we'll want to do things that we are consciously against. But because we fear to lose our lives, we will do those things. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I think that a failure to have a standard of responsibility of our lives and to embrace it, you have to get rid of that or redefine it in order to get people to live by fear. Yeah. So what became obvious to me in the book, that there was not a Christian foundation, but let's now transfer these principles or these ideas to America. America had a Christian foundation, but not unlike the communists in China, one of the ways that you take over a people is to separate them from their history. And so in China, statues went down of the old regime. Well, we saw statues come down in our country because this became important to say that whatever you think is true, we're going to tell you is not true. But when people are more interested in security than faithfulness and are willing to accept slavery rather than liberty, it becomes a lot easier to control them. Well, it's essential. Uh, you know, if you have an agenda of control or you have an agenda of power, uh, this is where I think probably the we, we make the great mistake of thinking that these people are hypocrites. And I don't think that at all. You know, we, we think that there's a logical argument to be used against them and so forth. And that's just simply not the case because in their minds and in their theology and their view of the future, power is a virtue. And if you understand that in their view, power is a virtue and that any means that gets you to virtue is an acceptable means, then you have a more accurate understanding of why they do what they do. And see, as a Christian, I know that's not true. It's very difficult at times to attribute to people the things that they they will themselves tell you that this is virtue, the exercise of power. So once you get people encapsulated in that, they, they believe that they can attain power, that they then plunder becomes righteous. That's why you hear these these different discussions about that, but we, we're already as a society, we're already so advanced in the process of plunder 
until it's already a daily part of our lives. So, you know, we're just taking it a step further. But we're seeing this on a on a scale, you know, within America that I, I don't think that we have a at least a parallel in degree uh, in our history as a country. What makes it interesting about when the prevailing tyranny starts feeling a little bit like, well, we're having some resistance. One of the first things they did in China was to round up anyone who was educated. And they said that in order to really be a true communist, no matter what you know, whether you were a doctor, whether you were an engineer, you had to go be a peasant. You had to learn what it was like to not be educated. And so even when there were farm technologies that would have made farming easier, they wanted people to do it. And millions of people starved, which is why the Great Leap Forward was then replaced by the Cultural Revolution, because it wasn't so much that their policies were bad. People just hadn't done it correctly. And so I'm wondering if you see a parallel in our culture today. Well, there's this one really interesting chapter in the book that I think kind of points to to one of the one of the most egregious ideas. You know, when when you had the five year plan, the famine was was actually caused by a reallocation of people. This happened from 1958 to 1962 uh, in their country, and they reallocated resources that led to the famine. They pulled people off the farms. They put them in the mines. Uh, they put them to doing industrial productions, that kind of thing. And, and of course, it led to these huge, huge uh, food shortages. And one of the one of the teachings that came down to in order to cover up, in order, and, and, and you need to feel guilty rather than blaming the system, and uh, was the saying that capable women can make a meal without food. <laughs> well, if you couldn't do that as a woman, guess what that meant for you? You weren't a capable woman. I mean, the absurdity of it, we can sit and, and, and we laugh at it, but this, this was actually a cultural spirit, a cultural admonition. And uh, in the face of such hopelessness, I mean, women would obviously know what a farce that is. And, and, but we see these kind of absurdities uh, happening in Western civilizations, Western cultures. You know, you could run the gamut with it, like the idea that men can have babies. What kind of a mind must an individual have in order to make this assertion? The same mind that says capable women can make a meal without food. Right. It, it's just insanity. And that's how we need to treat it. it. We need to speak to it for the insanity that it is. And oftentimes with people who are so deeply immersed into this, you know, we, we just have to work with them. We have to love them. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we may have entered a time when the Lord has sent, you know, just an abundance of his judgment to depraved minds and turn them over to it. 
those are situations, uh, you know, there's the, the, the micro scale and the, the macro scale. So you, on the large scale, that's an ideology that's used to divide on the small scale. It's just tragic for human life. So to answer the question I posed, why do tyrannical governments create a culture of hate to control their citizens is because if you can create division in families, in communities, you'll you'll be able to prevail because instead of fighting you, they're fighting each other. And I, I think that's obvious today with people who don't want to associate with certain other people, either because they have or have not been vaccinated. So that just becomes our issue. But for this kind of thing to take hold, what is your assessment as to where the church has been deficient? My, my take on it is I, I don't think the church has been deficient. Okay. And, and there's a reason for that. If, if I were to say, for instance, the government created a problem in Afghanistan. Or if I were to say our corporate policy requires that we do this, those statements are meaningless. And what I mean by meaningless is, is that it wasn't the government who did whatever that was done in Afghanistan. There were certain particular individuals who made ethical decisions to do what was done in Afghanistan. There were other individuals who chose to follow that on the basis of whatever their ethical priorities were. And as long as we just say the government, there's no way to assign accountability. And it's the same way with, for, for instance, corporate policies. Corporations do not have ethics until you add one ingredient to it. People. Mm-hmm. Only people have ethics. And so therefore, when we say corporate policy is this, no, John Doe wrote this ethic that he wanted everyone in the corporation to promote. And I have to agree to promote that ethic as an individual. I think this same argument applies to what we call the church. It is true that the church, as it were, the bride of Christ, the redeemed of the Lord, the invisible group, manifests itself in local congregations, but it's always made up of individuals. And I believe that one of the greatest hiding places for professing Christians is to blame our current crises of ethical dilemmas on the church, because that removes a position of accountability for us as individuals. And so, therefore, if I accept I am responsible, I am part of the church, then I have to then assume the responsibility of making ethical decisions to advance the cause of Christ in the earth. And as long as we leave it under the umbrella of the church, how do we do accountability? How do we assign responsibilities? But if we say Tim Yarborough is a professing Christian and he lives in Lawrence County, Alabama, And he has a duty to do the following things in accordance with his faith and to do those things. Now we have accountability. We have responsibility. 
if we say so-and-so is a, a pastor, and this is what the pastor's responsibility is, then we have a, a mechanism for accountability. We have a, 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 a way to assess the assignments of responsibilities. One of the things that I have become convinced of over the years, Andrea, is I think we approach this question of authority totally backwards. You know, even uh, I think some well-meaning brothers and, and and even in history, we talk about the authorities. But when you look in the scriptures, for instance, we see, first of all, that God assigns responsibilities. If I were talking about civil authorities, the Lord says that they are to be a minister of God to thee for the rewarding of good and for the punishment of evil. That's an assignment of responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And built into that is an accountability process. And that is we are to evaluate how they fulfill their responsibilities on the basis of the definitions of good and evil. And then they are given the authority to fulfill their responsibilities in order to be accountable. And so I think that we've got it reversed. We start with authority, then we go to responsibilities and accountabilities, when in the scriptures, it starts right the opposite. And we could do the same thing, for instance, in in speaking about husbands or speaking about wives. God assigns responsibilities. Tim Yarborough, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You are to live with your wife with understanding. This imposes responsibilities and duties. You are not to be bitter against her. You are to honor her as a weaker vessel. These are all assigned responsibilities. What we like to do is go to the one that says man is the, you know, the head, because we, we forget that what that means is defined in the, in the context of responsibilities. So if we as individuals accept these responsibilities, here's the outcome of that. Number one, we will have appropriate boundaries with every relationship we have. Now, we may have to discover what those are, and we may have to work that out, as it were. But we will recognize I'm responsible, and we will have those boundaries, and we will know when they're crossed. And that would be true across the board, whether we're dealing in family relationships, ecclesiastical relationships, economic relationships, civil relationships. We would know one of the outgrowths of this is even in this, this like with this book, there's this picture. You can just hear, and we've had this happen right here in our area with a professing Reformed church where the session is seeking to discipline a man because he disagreed with their interpretation of, for instance, Romans 13. Wow. And this particular session, the way that they avoided the conflict about whether or not he could have a different opinion was that they wanted to censor him on the basis that he knew that they would disagree with his position. Their position was that whatever the government tells you, you have to do, you have to do if it's not sinful. And the specific issue that came up in the context of that controversy was the second amendment. And so their view was, as the government said, you had to turn in your guns, you had to turn in your guns. No resistance whatsoever. Well, he took, uh, you know, the 
historical view and, and I believe the appropriate view that no, the Christian has a right to defend himself and not just a right, but a duty to do so in his family and so on and so forth. And that became a, a centrist issue. And in fact, a, a possible issue of excommunication. Wow. Now, when you have that type of leadership within a professing reformed church, you have a real serious problem with what we call leadership that type of things, because there's no way that they could defend a view of God's sovereignty over each of his people. And so one of the aspects of that, that I think will be helpful, you know, we've all heard growing up in the circles that we travel in, that God has ordained three forms of government. Sometimes you'll hear four, but mostly three, and that is uh, civil government, ecclesiastical government, and family government. And my contention is, is that, see, we, we, we put that up there and we have now have this blank canvas. And then it becomes appropriate to say, let the civil authorities fill that in. Let the ecclesiastical authorities fill that in. Let the father fill that in, what that means. What I make the contention is, is that that's not an appropriate picture. The reality is in the scriptures, God ordained limited civil government, limited ecclesiastical government, limited family government. Now, when you put that on the board, and I've done this in some of the local uh, you know, seminars that I've teach, I always ask people, now, when you look at those two pictures here, and we write those out, what is the first question that comes to your mind? And there has been no exceptions to this so far. The first question is, what are the limitations? And I contend that that's exactly the biblical answer. Yes. We should know what those are. And we, we should be teaching that to our people, not only in regards to civil authority, but ecclesiastical authority and within the family. And it also speaks to the fact, and this is something that Dr. Rush Juni spent lots of time, that ultimately it's the self-government of the individual in accordance with God's law. So that means you have to know where to go to find these limitations. And of course, that's the word of God. It's not going to come by just getting a consensus, let everybody vote on it, who's got the most guns, and then he makes the decision. Oh, there, there is an interesting parallel in the life of Christ. One of the things that I hope to do before the Lord calls me home is uh, I'm, I'm going through the scriptures now as I'm writing them out and I'm pulling out all the instances of the conflicts between either the prophets of God, the Christ himself, or the Lord speaking from heaven or further on into the New Testament with the, the different disciples of the, the confrontations that occurred with systems, whether it's the civil system are the ecclesiastical systems, are within the family systems itself. And one of the, the things that's fascinating about the life of Christ that I have discovered so far is how he went about exposing abusive systems. And he did this uh, both civilly and ecclesiastically. You know, his chief confrontations 
landed on those who saw themselves as God's official spokespeople. That's where the majority of Christ's confrontations were at. They were the most religious. They had the positions. They had, you know, the performance things. And they, they set the standards for everyone else. And everyone else was judging by that. You could see this, like, for instance, with the parents of the man who was healed. He'd been blind from birth. And they asked him about it. And he said, you know, uh, well, I, I don't know who it was. And, you know, but yeah, I was blind from birth and now I see. And so they called the parents in and the parents were so afraid of the systemic abuse that would be heaped on them. They said, well, he's an adult. Ask him when it's obvious he's standing right there. They did tell him, yeah, he's been blind from the day he was born. But they were so afraid of the consequences of this system. The the, uh, young man who was healed, what an incredible answer that he, he, he gave. You know, he said, well, I don't know about all that, but this one thing I can tell you, I was blind and now I see. Are you going to become his disciple as well? But. (laughs) You know, here he was confronting them with an obvious truth. He was seeing. Then uh, the, the, the second thing about Christ with these systemic abuses, and this, this is the appropriate process, whether it's civil, ecclesiastical, or familiar. And that is, is that he broke the religious rules by confronting those in authority out loud. He did it publicly. This is always resented when people who are hypocritical in their processes are exposed out loud. It's because one of their great desires is to keep things covered up. And you see that like with the meetings of the religious authorities, you know, with Jesus and and uh, even with Pilate, uh, you, you see this where, you know, there were there was a limited amount of things he did publicly, but for the most part, uh, he did what you know, people have done who are scared of losing power, always do. And then the uh, the Lord Christ, he treated the problem as a problem because it was a problem. He didn't, you know, just avoid it. He didn't go around it. It is a problem. And then um, when he treated this, and, and particularly in regards to those who were, were subject to this oppressive system, the thing that you discover is who went to seek him out. It was the broken, the hurt, those who were harmed, those who were the outcasts. They weren't within the the structure, and they sought him out. Well, there's some great lessons to be learned in this of how we do these things. I know of a certain situation, and this is from a civil perspective here in my state, where our governor called, uh, you know, members of a certain party in, and it was kind of the conjoling thing about passing a gas tax here in our state. I had gone to a meeting with some other brothers here, and we had our county commissioners, mayors, state representatives, both in the House and in the Senate, and they were talking about this gas tax and debating it and, and so forth. And so having listened to it for a little bit, you know, and, and everybody else making their presentation, they then opened up the floor and different ones spoke and, and they gave me an opportunity to speak. And I made an incredibly bold statement as my introduction, primarily because I wanted everyone's attention. <laughs> 
And I said, before I get done with my short presentation here, everybody in this room is going to agree with my position. I could not have gotten more attention no matter what I'd done. And, and so I rehearsed this, uh, this idea of the gas tax and how the gas tax, I mean, at this point, we don't even know how much the gas tax is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. I said, but let me tell you from a principal standpoint, what's going to happen here. What's going to happen is, is that this gas tax is going to pass no matter all of the hoopla that goes on and the posturing that goes on, the gas tax will pass. Now, here's where I think every single one of you are going to agree with me. We're going to pass this tax, and there's not one single person in this room who believes that this will actually solve the problem and that we will be back once again addressing this issue at five years, six years, 10 years down the road. All of this amounts to nothing more than kicking the can down the road. Now, if you disagree with that, I'd love to hear your reasonings, but here's the shameful part about it, is that everybody in this room who is in a position of public policymaking is then going to go out and tout what great leadership it is, while you know that we've done nothing more than kick this can down the road. Now, if you disagree with that, raise your hand and tell us why. Guess how many hands were raised? Um, none. <laughs> Not a one. And I said, I rest my case. So I'm just going to point out something here, and I hope my listeners get it. It's not enough to complain privately with a bunch of other people who agree with you if you will not confront those who, as you pointed out before, Tim, are responsible. So Let's say the HR person where you work is telling you, look, this is just company policy. We just have to do this. Just because she's not the one or he's not the one who runs the organization doesn't mean that that person's not responsible because we're all responsible for the truth. And we might lose a job. We might lose public approbation. We might lose, you know, family and friends over it. But it's the truth that matters. And one of the things that the book showed and what we've been discussing is that if you don't say that the truth is absolute and that things have to comport with it, then you're going to compromise and you're going to basically be giving in to whatever tyranny is coming your way. Yes, and and not letting people escape, primarily beginning with yourself. Yes. Not letting people escape from the ethical truth that for you to enforce this policy and for you to claim, well, I don't necessarily agree with it, that's not true. You may disagree ethically from it in your mind, but in your lifestyle, for you to promote it, you have to agree with it. And thinking back on the original question I asked and and your answer that there are three ways that cultures are taken over by force, by persuasion, or economically, if you make it, and this is really obviously in the book, if people have to work so hard just to survive, just to stay warm, just to be able to see their families and and, and things like that, the hope is that they will not stand up against those things that are not true. 
And so one of the ways that you can successfully be divided from the things that you care about, you value your own ease and comfort more than you value the truth of God's word. Yes. Well, there's a great principle in scripture that says this. And for old country boys like us, it's pretty easy for us to picture this. But he says, the beginning of strife is as when one lets out water. Therefore, leave off strife before it be meddled with. When the principle there is, is that if you're going to have strife, it's much easier to cut it off while the trickle is small. And so a responsible individual as we grow into responsibility and maturity, when we see these issues, we will try to address them as soon as they raise their heads because it's much easier to confront them while they are just a small stream than when the faucet is opened all the way up. So true. So and true. That, that is where we are today. We have the faucets. They are opened up and the institutions that are the, you know, the, the makers, the universities, the schools. These are arenas where we have to recapture these things. And, and it's going to be done at a local level. It's, you know, there is a, I think in the scriptures, we can see a clear connection between top down and bottom up. Uh, but from a cultural standpoint and a responsibility standpoint, the top down will always respond to the ethics of the bottom up. Once you reach, there's a certain tipping point that you reach. I, I don't know exactly where that is on the fulcrum, but you reach it and they respond. Yes. Well, Tim, I have a feeling that we could talk for hours more on this. I would encourage people to get the book. And even though I wasn't going to, I'll probably do the follow-up book now that you mentioned some of the things there that would be interesting to understand. I hope that people who listen will realize that it starts in the home. You know, you talked about when the water spigot is turned on. If I'm talking to a mom of a toddler and the toddler won't listen when mom says to sit down, I say, add 10 years, add 15 years. Now we're talking car keys, right? right? And now if you tell that child you can't take the car, but the child is used to not listening, well, now you have bigger problems. So- not only does these need to be addressed locally, but as you put it, we have to say we're responsible in the various roles God has given us. Yes. And, and just think of this. If in a local congregation of people, you have, let's say there are 50 people and everyone adopts the biblical theology that I am responsible. Now, tell me what kind of congregation that's going to be. Mm -hmm. And so... That, that's going to be a very responsible congregation. It's going to be a congregation that examines things, that tries things, that because they are so enamored with the love of Christ, who has given us his commandments, his commandments are not grievous. They bring light to our lives. They bring joy to us. And we know this. We know it by experience. We know it by his testimony. And so when you function with a group of people like that, what happens is this, there's this incredible growth and maturity that becomes the individual responsibility. You, and, and you know you have these expectations that I am supposed to grow up into Christ. And I measure that by my response to the word of God. 
and what the Lord commands me. Well, if you just take that and you expand it out, which of course I have to, to confess has been my vision for a number of decades, just for my county. If, if we in my county could have that type of acceptance that I am responsible on a countywide scale, more than just, you know, we, we know this intellectually, but I mean by lifestyle, by spirit, by emotion, by conduct. What an incredible light to the world. Absolutely. Well, Tim, before we go, there's going to be people who want to know. I need to know more about this guy. I need to know what he knows. How would people either get in touch with you or what they can read that you produced or anything like that? One of the, the best ways to get a hold of me is by email. We don't have a lot of social media presence. I am on Facebook and I'm on Gab, but Tim Yarborough 77 at gmail.com is a, a good way to get a hold of me. I, I can would be glad with those that you know wanted to email and send them my phone number. But if people call me and don't leave a message, I never return the call. So because as y'all Everybody experiences. You have the, all these telemarketers and they use these different schemes. So if it's really important, they'll leave me a message and I'll know who it is and I'll call them back. There you go. Uh, just encourage people to reach out and where we are and quit looking at things as being hopeless. I mean, there are major changes that have gone on in our world in my lifetime. And I personally am convinced, uh, Andrea, that we are on the, the precipice of probably the greatest reformation for the kingdom of God that the world has yet to see. I have witnessed in my adult lifetime, this, this growing love for all of the word of God, this growing appreciation, this growing expectation. And yeah, it's, it's, it's like leaven and uh, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the wheat, it, it had, takes time to grow but the last three years, I have literally witnessed more people interested in God's commandments, in God's social order, in, you know, what does redemption do in our lives, that kind of thing. If you took the rest of my adult life together, the last three years would at least be equal to the rest of my adult life. That's my experience as well. And when I talk to people who are depressed and concerned Every now and then I have to say, I wonder what's wrong with me because I'm not. <laughs> I'm actually hopeful like you. So I have to do this quick check and say, should I be depressed? Should I think it's all hopeless? By God's grace, I remember that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Yes. There's these two beautiful promises of scripture for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to leave it there because I don't think we could say anything more that was better. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can always reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.